Once in a while, I just have random thoughts. <clears throat> Actually, what are you all laughing about? <laughs> Once in a while. <clears throat> I was watching. This doesn't fit anywhere, but I just have to say it. So I don't know where to say it. So you just say it up front, and then you start. So that's what I'm going to do. And this is free. You don't have to pay for this, too. This is just on the side. Um, <clears throat> I was watching Channel, Channel 17 yesterday, and Bill Moyers was on, and he does this thing about religion and Genesis and a lot of different things, and he had this guy on, and, and I don't know the guy's name, and uh, um, I guess before you rip on somebody, you should know his name, but I don't know his name, but he was talking about, he had this picture, and it was this picture of Jesus ascending into heaven, and how he talked about, he said, that once you accept the Jesus myth, and you understand that all of religion is just myth, and that, um, that it, it will actually help you and set you free in your faith, because you don't have to think he didn't say it this way, but think ridiculous thoughts that Jesus, this picture where Jesus was ascending into heaven, and, uh, and Bill Morris is like, oh, that has set me so free, basically saying, not to no longer believe that the things that I believe are actually true, but to believe now that the things that I believe are fictionally true, therefore, they will help me in life, because we're all just on this journey of metaphysical understanding of each other and we'll feel better. That was the biggest load of BS I ever heard in my life. I hope, hey, did I get any men on that? Yeah. Listen, listen, Jesus Christ, a real person, I mean, you know, a real person, died, was rose again, like dead, not living, no heartbeat, no brain waves. He died. And he rose again. And he ascended. Now, granted, it doesn't look like those pictures necessarily with all the little angels and everything. But this, this idea that what we believe is a myth and that it's okay to believe it because it'll make you happier. Man, what a load. So anyway, that really didn't fit anywhere. But I just want to encourage you because I think sometimes, especially if you're at the university or something, you kind of get this. The Jesus myth. And if you're familiar with any of the things that are happening in scholarship, they talk about the Jesus seminar where all these quote-unquote scholars sit around and they decide what Jesus actually said and what he didn't say. And if you look at what they've looked through, they look through all the Gospels and Jesus only said one thing that he really said and that was render under, under uh, Caesar what is Caesar's, under God what is God's. Everything else is just myth made up. And I thought, well, how, how do you know? I mean, just because you don't like what he said. Because, you know, it's very exclusive when somebody says, you know, I'm God. I'm the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, he didn't really mean that. No, he meant that. It's very simple. I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people don't like that. And so you think, well, we don't want to throw away Jesus. So we'll just, uh, we'll hang on to Jesus, but we'll hang on to the Jesus that we're going to recreate. Don't recreate Jesus. Let Jesus be Jesus. Now, that is, I'm going to stop now because I'm, I'm on a different message completely. But uh, <clears throat> we are in a continuing study right now called The Church on Fire. And we have been in the last few weeks, last week Hamlet spoke about the passion of the Christ, the trials that he went through. And I hope you saw last year. I hope that you left last week, excuse me. I hope you left seeing how Jesus orchestrated the whole thing for your benefit. We're on a series right now in the middle of uh, uh, this, well, not middle, uh, kind of towards the beginning, 
of this series, and it's a mini-series called The Transformed Life in Community. The Transformed Life in the Context of Community. We're looking at what happened at the end of chapter 2. Just to catch you up to speed, we have to kind of tell you what's happening in the beginning of chapter 2 so you understand. In the beginning of chapter 2, the apostles and about uh, 108 other people, they say about 120 people total, were, were somewhere in this house praying And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came on them like it had never come on any people before. It came on with such power and such a visual demonstration. It looked like laps of fire or even like tongues of fire. I can just see it in this room just flying around and just would land on people. And all of a sudden, those people who it landed on would start to speak other languages. Languages that they didn't know, but they were known languages of the time. Because there were people all over Jerusalem at that day that came and said, whoa, what's going on here? And they knew those languages and they'd say, whoa, there's somebody speaking French or Swahili. Or like I said before, Iron Ranger. Which would be kind of like, eh, praise God, eh? You know, that's, you have to. (laughs) And then Peter stands up and all these people, it's quite a setting for him to give the first Christian sermon ever. And he gives this sermon to all these people at Jerusalem who, are, who had come for this festival called the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost is another name. They had come and, and now there's a whole group of people. We, I don't know how many were total, but it was well over 3,000. We know that for sure. So it's this huge group and Peter gives this sermon. And in this sermon, at the end of it, it says 3,000 people were added to their numbers. 3,000 people. They were added to their numbers. And then we looked at, we're looking in this, in this five-week series at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we're looking at what did this new group, this 3,000 plus the original 120, and however it says, at the end of it, it says the Lord added daily to the number who were being saved. And so there was more and more and more people. What did that look like? What did the first church look like? Because that's what it was, the very first church. And it was a mega church. How do you like that? 3,000 people. What did that look like? And we've been spending some time looking at this. This week before we, and, and quite honestly, this week, before we even get to uh, two of the elements that they devoted themselves to in, in verse 42, as we'll take a look at in just a minute, I want to spend about 80% of my time this morning on talking uh, about the question, how did this transformation happen to these people? Remember, many of these 3,000 people that were there were just weeks ago yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, And then now, 50 some odd days later, they're bent their knee to Jesus and they're following Christ. Whoa, how does does that happen? What what happened? So I want to take a look. If you want to follow along on the insert... If, you're, if you brought your Bible this morning, that's great, but I hope you, we're going to look at a few different verses. So maybe you just want to grab that insert or look at the screen, whichever. I want to look at what happens in order before verse 42 and what happened to these people and how are they so transformed? They were a different community of people. How does that transformation happen? So let's look a look at Acts chapter 2 and just the five verses previous, verse 37 to 41. Peter was... Peter was uh, preaching this message to them, telling them who Christ was, that he was God. And that you guys, by yelling crucify him, you guys killed God. Now that's not the complete correct answer, remember, because Jesus killed himself, in, in a sense. I mean, he, didn't, he used other people to 
go to the cross. We saw that last week very clearly. So after this is all done, after they hear this message and they feel all of a sudden for the first time in their life, they feel panicked because of what they've done. That's where we pick it up in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, that just means they were panicked or hyperventilating. <gasps> what do we do? What do we do? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, I want you to feel that question again. Brothers, what shall we do? There's a sense of panic. What should we do about the fact that we were the ones who looked wrongly on the Christ and we were part of the process that nailed him to that cross? What do we do? We are in deep trouble. You know, we often, at Hope, I often talk about what sin is and sin is looking a holy God in the face and slapping him. And we kind of get that analogy in your mind. Some of these people might physically have slapped Jesus. They might physically have slapped him at the trials or when he was walking from, from the, for the, where the trial was to where the next one was or from there to the crucifixion. They might have slapped God Almighty. Can you imagine how panicked you'd be thinking about that? Oh, bummer. I mean, you slapped Christ. Okay? That's the kind of panic they have. What do we need to do? And Peter says there's two things they have to do. Two things that they have to do. First of all was to repent. Repentance is, it's a simple word, just basically means to turn around, to do a 180, or like Jason Kidd said when he was trade, traded, I'm here to turn this team 360 degrees around. <laughs> that would not be repentance, that would be just turning right around. But this is a 180 degree turn. It is turning away from something. Repenting means to whatever you're holding on to to be your God, you let go. You let go. Second thing, he says, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Not just to go through a religious ceremony. That's not the point. It says to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism, to a Jew, they would have known clearly what this was. This was a thing of converting. They used it to convert into Judaism. To become a Jew, you got baptized. They knew They understood it. So, Baptism was, or repentance was letting go. Baptism was turning to Christ. Repentance, turning away, you got to let it go. Whatever you're hanging on to that gives you life besides God, those, those, those things that you think will fill you, you let it go, and you turn and you turn, you hang on to Christ, you cling to Christ. You're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Means changing your allegiance from one thing to another. Okay? Did that alone cause transformation? Did the fact that they repented and turned towards Jesus, does that cause transformation? Anyone want to take a chance? Yes or no? No, it does not cause transformation. I mean, how many times have you said, I will not eat Krispy Kreme donuts, I will eat oatmeal in the morning? But dude, the Krispy Kreme donut is right there. Probably doesn't help that you buy a dozen at a time. 
The, the, the act of your will alone is not enough. What causes transformation? What happens to these people? Let's look at what happens to them as a result. What does Peter say? He says two things. Baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for, repent and be baptized. What's going to happen? For the forgiveness of your sins. The first thing that's going to happen is your sins will be forgiven. Second thing that's going to happen, he says, is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, let's unpack these, these two. I got three uh, Asians that I want you to learn this morning. And I admit it. For the next few minutes, we're going to kind of a little bit into theologyville here. But it's a good, it's a good thing. J.I. Packer, uh, a great professor and speaker and writer out at Regent College, has said, bad theology, don't, don't, get word, don't get freaked up by that word. The word just means study of God. Theology, study of God, Krispy Kremeology, study of Krispy Kreme. Don't get, you know, freaked out by this. Theology, theos is Greek for God. Theo, theology means study of God. No big deal. Bad theology, Packer says, hurts people. I couldn't agree with that more. I, it, it's, it's often that I talk to people who are in churches that have terrible theology, terrible theology, which hurts people, telling you that you have to be really good in order to get to heaven, or you have to uh, earn money to show God's favor, or if you're ill, there's something wrong with you because you just don't have enough faith, yada, yada, yada. There's lots of things. Bad theology hurts people. Contra counter to that, then, the opposite would be good theology can help people. Now, notice I didn't say will, because I think you could use good theology as a club over people's head, and it, you know, it hurts. Good theology can help people. My aim this morning is that as you learn some things about what happened to you when you trusted Christ, it'll set you free. It'll set you free for, to let the transformation that's already taken place in your life, that you won't quench it anymore, and you'll just be able to run with it. That's my goal this morning. Hopefully to replace some of that... Um, some of those thoughts. Good theology can help people. Let's talk about these. There's three great Asians. The first of which, we talk about, he talks about the forgiveness of sins. Um, in, that, in that passage, he talks about the forgiveness of sins. And that's the first great Asian. Theology, they just call it justification. If you go to the next one there. Yep. Justification. Galatians 2, verses 15 to 16 says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, by because, by, uh, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, that is awesome. That's hard language there. But this is awesome news for you this morning. The awesome news here is, he says, no one gets justified by observing the law. You're saying, what? What does that mean? It answers the basic question. How do you get into heaven? What does it mean to be justified? We'll talk about that in a second. How do you even get in? Observing the law. The law is this book right here. Paul is only referring to the Old Testament. But we can refer now to the whole thing. In other words, if you follow the rules, it won't get you in. 
And that's the best thing I can tell you this morning. It's the most freeing thing to know that it's not because you follow all the rules that you get into heaven. Huh? Is that great? That is great, because otherwise you and I are set for a lifetime of making darn sure we follow the rules, and when we don't follow the rules, we'll live in denial by saying we didn't follow them all. It is the most freeing thing you can know is that you can't measure up. Listen to Romans 5 on this issue. I want to read verses 6 through 8, and then I want to skip down to verse 14. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a sinner here this morning, you are a candidate for the love of grace, the love and the grace that Christ gives you. If you're not a sinner, you're not. The good news is only good news to those who are in deep trouble. And if you don't have that sense of panic that they had here when they said, brothers, what should we do? You won't get how awesome it is that you've been released from that. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is what Christ did. The trespass is what Adam did when he ate the fruit. And caused the first sin. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. That's talking about Adam. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. When Adam and Eve, when they took that apple or whatever it was, probably not an apple, but they took that fruit, Something happened. The world changed. We could no longer be in the Garden of Eden. We were kicked out. We now live in what is called a fallen world where things that are not, they're supposed to be right and they're not. We live in a fallen world. There is sin. Uh, lost my place. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift, gift followed many trespasses all of us have sinned and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Now here's the verse. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Okay, I read the rest just to kind of get you that last verse. You and I, when Adam and, when Adam and Eve sinned, and particularly Adam, they blame Adam. Adam is our head. In other words, we are all responsible in a way for what happened. Adam is our representative sinned, and all of a sudden sin spreads to everywhere. Every one of us by nature and by choice are sinners. If you don't believe it, you have a little baby. Oh, they're so precious. They're just so great. Wait till they're two. And you... <laughs> You know, I, I don't have a hard time at all convincing parents of the fallen nature, the natural fallen nature of humans. We do. It's like, mine, mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I played with it in the last six weeks, it's mine. 
Let's watch a bunch of two-year-olds together. You see how selfish we really are. By the way, most board meetings that I've been a part of uh, are just like a bunch of two-year-olds. But anyway. <laughs> For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. By nature and by choice were all sinners. So also through the obedience, that's Christ going to the cross. If you saw that scene in the movie in, the, in Gethsemane, poof. Man, you could leave after that. That was worth it right there. That was the obedience. Lord, if there's, he, Jesus is praying, Father, if there's any other way. And there was no other way. Through Adam's sin, we're all part of this fallen world. And that's bad news. However, there are two things that happen. It says, through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Uh, yeah. All of us are credited to our account with sin, if you want to call it that. The big fancy word is the word imputation. And I don't want to go there, but it's a big, uh, it means credited to our account. If God were to look at our bank account on our, our morality level, we would be in trouble. Now, what happens to that bank account? Let me go to 2 Corinthians. Just this really makes it clear. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him. If you're not into scripture memory, memorize this verse. Even if you're not in any of them. This is money. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Huh? Is that not awesome? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's three main things that happen there. This is awesome. Look at your bank account. Your bank account's got all these sins, you know, and you might be a different, different place in your life where you're willing to acknowledge more and more of them. God sees them all as they really are. And there's all those things in your account that are negative. All right? You've got all these things in your life that are negative. God made him who had no sin, Christ, to be sin for us. So that sin comes out of your account and it goes on the cross. So where's your account now? Zero. Thank you. Zero. I, I, I'm, I've got a zero account now because the, the sin was put there. But it's better than that. It's better than that. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whoa, back up, back the bus up. Wait a minute now. Righteousness means I'm righteous. Righteous, dude. I am, I am, righteous means I have positive things in my account. Righteous means, and the word justified, means that I could stand up in a court of law and they wouldn't just declare me not guilty. They wouldn't declare me innocent. They would declare me justified. You're righteous. Not only are you not negative, not only are you neutral, you're actually positive. You have righteousness in your account. It, the great exchange happens. Jesus takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness from his life. In your account is Jesus' life. Whew, that is awesome. On Judgment Day, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God will look at you and he will not just say, oh, you know what, you've sinned, but I forgive you of it, which is true. 
But he will look at your account, and your account will say, righteous, come on in. You're not just not guilty. You are righteous. We, I, used, I used an analogy when we were in the other building uh, about a year and a half ago. I said, it's like you got a jacket. It's all dirty. And let's say you're judged on how clean your jacket is, and it's dirty with motor oil and smudge and, and things like you've been laying under one of the Hope vans or the Hope bus, and you're trying to clean it off, and it just keeps getting more smudged, and it's, it's supposed to be a white jacket. And Jesus comes to you, and he says, I'll take your jacket. So you take off your jacket, and in order for him to put on your jacket, he has to take off his jacket, and he's holding it. You put on, he puts on your jacket, and he says, here. And he gives you his white jacket. It's like, awesome. Got me a white jacket. Got me a Jesus jacket. <laughs> you will be, that's what it means to be justified. That's what happens, is, is you can know this morning, you can know this morning, walking out those doors, you can know that your life will not be judged on, on the day of judgment with God. You'll be judged on the life of Christ. You can know that if you play, put your faith and trust in Christ alone. If you repent and turn to him, you can know that. Now, let me ask a question. A little bit of a tricksy question. See if you get it. Huh? Kind of tricksy. <clears throat> Does the fact that Jesus Christ took your sin, took it on the cross, and credits your account with his righteousness cause transformation? Oh, look at the good theology students. Yeah, <clears throat> we just talked about this. No, it doesn't. It's a neat thing. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's awesome. But it doesn't change me necessarily. It doesn't change me from the inside out. Second Asian. Second Asian is where, Paul, where Peter says to them, you will be filled, or excuse me, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The second Asian is regeneration. There's something that happens to a person. Actually, there's many things that happen to a person when they decide to follow Christ. It's not just a change of worldview. It's not just saying, Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you. It is that. It certainly isn't less than that. But there's more. The Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and changes you completely. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 20. This is the Old Testament, and it was written hundreds of years before Christ, and it was talking about this event that happened in Acts chapter 2. Ezekiel 36 says, I, this is God speaking, and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you're going to be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's regeneration. That's something that happens to you where you're different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. When Jesus died on that cross... He was able to send the Spirit to you to reside in you and to change you from the inside out. He was able to provide this new life that's talking about. It's why 3,000 people gathered and said, what do we have to do? They said, repent and be baptized. They did. And the next thing, they're, they're hanging out in the temple for days and days and days, devoting themselves to, we saw the, the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And this week we're going to look at the bread and prayer. And then they give away all their possessions and they're just nuts on each other. Why? Because they're different. Not just because they signed a thing that they became a Democrat 
or a Republican. Not, nothing against the parties. Actually, gosh, it's like 200 days left till I'm so sick of it already. Anyway, the, um, but, but we, there's a transformation that takes place. Third thing. It, the logical question then is, if that's true, if I've been forgiven of my sin, not only that, but I've been credited with what Jesus went through. He gave me his Jesus jacket and I've been regenerated, then why do I struggle so much? Why, why, why is life so tough? Why do I still want to do things that I know don't give God glory, and I don't even want to do them? They're not the things I was created to do anymore. They don't give me life. Why? Third Asian. Yes. Third Asian. <laughs> da Asian. Uh, third Asian is sanctification. Sanctification is the process where you become holy. Sanctify means to cleanse something. In this book also on page 49, um, John writes, the Bible pictures this, he's talking about this, this change in our lives, pictures this again in the old language of dough and leaven, which is yeast. In the picture, leaven is evil. We are the lump of dough. It says, the Bible says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christians are unleavened and there is no yeast in us. There is no leaven, no evil. We are perfected. For this reason, we are to cleanse out the old leaven. We have been made unleavened, don't have any yeast, in Christ so we should now become unleavened in practice. And I love this phrase. In other words, we should become what we are. Isn't that great? We should become what we are. You are changed on the inside. Now live that way. Listen to what Paul says. Um, Rebecca, I'm going to flip the orders. Go to the second one, would you? Um, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, he says, Surely you heard of him and were taught in him, talking about Jesus in accordance with the truth that is in him. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its de deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says in Philippians chapter 2, if you go back one, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I love this. So it says to work hard in your journey of life. And then it says for, because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I know that's a little hard to figure out. How do you work hard at something when it's God who's actually in you who causes you to act and to make decisions his way? But that's what that promise is of God being with you. We're in a journey. Everybody in this room right now is on a journey. Some of you have come to a point in your life where you've trusted Christ as Savior and as Lord. If you're at that point, you're on this journey now of trying to become who you already are. You're cleaning up. You're getting rid of the leaven, getting rid of it so there's no longer yeast in you. You are different, out with the old and in with the new. Now, what does that have to do with all this? That's what happens in the white space between verses 41 and 42. Their sins were forgiven, they were transformed, but they knew, and the apostles I'm sure taught them, that it's a lifetime of trying to become more and more like Jesus. And But God's going to promise to work in you to do that. 
You are already clean, now live that way. The Bible says, you are holy, now live holy. It says those kind of things. John Wesley was once asked, John Wesley was a great preacher uh, in the 1700s. Wrong, right? 1700s? John Wesley was one asked about the secret of his ministry. And he, it's a great, what he said. He said, I asked God to set me on fire and let people watch me burn. He says, I, I want to be transformed by you, God. And let other people just watch, get the marshmallows because I want to be transformed. That's what Church on Fire is about. That's what being transformed is about. He's letting that thing that's already started in you, letting it run free. Not trying to work after anything any longer to earn God's favor. You've already got it. You can't get any more righteous than having Jesus' righteousness for you. But letting it change you. Now, with all that said, how do we become sanctified? What kind of practices should we be a part of? Well, that's Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Let's take a look at it. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That, that's how it happens. That, that, it happens like that. Your transformation happens individually, but, it, but the sanctification process, this process of becoming more like Jesus, never happens in a vacuum. It happens as a community. It happens together. Yes, there are things that can happen alone, but God has designed you to work together with other people, and so we're looking at being transformed, transformed in the context of the community. We're going to look at two things. We're only going to take a few minutes on these. Devoted to the bread... And to prayer. They were devoted to the bread. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now what does that mean? And it meant, meant a couple things. One is they ate together. They were devoted to eating together. But every time they ate together, they just were so into it that they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They celebrated what we did here last week, communion. Do you ever think about that? That Christianity is the only place that at least, you know, on, on, a, on a weekly basis or maybe even more than that, its followers celebrate the death of their leader? It's kind of an interesting religion. That's what we do. That's what the bread is. You celebrate the death of Christ. And that's why I spent so much time to go there, so you'd appreciate what the death of Christ did for you. Otherwise, communion really doesn't mean anything. It's a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and big whoop. No. It's because of all those things that he did for you. That's how you celebrate, celebrate, the fact that Christ died for you. They were devoted to it. They were devoted to thinking about Christ dying for them. People of hope, devote yourselves to being always in awe that Jesus Christ, when he was on, on that cross, obviously not that cross, but one like it, he looked at you with favor. He looked from the cross with a wink in his eye at you. Be devoted to to the cross, and they were devoted to that, and that's how it comes out here in the bread. And they were devoted to prayer. Literally, it means to the prayers. Or they, that means they went to the temple. Remember, they were in the temple courts. They went there three times a day. They were at uh, 9, 12, 9 in the morning, 12 noon, and 3 p.m. They went to these prayers all the time. 
And maybe for some of them, for the first time in their life, prayer meant anything. It's kind of like me. After I became a follower of Christ, I went home that Christmas and sang Christmas carols. It's like, oh man, these are awesome. And it hurt all my life, but now they were awesome. The difference between the prayers offered by the people who were Jewish and the prayers offered by those who were Christian in that temple were that for a Christian, if you remember this from the movie, there's a scene where the curtain is torn in two. Not a lot is made of it. There's an earthquake and the curtain is torn in two. The difference is, is you have direct access to God. Not only do you have direct access, you have the ability to call God Almighty God. Don't diminish that. Almighty God, Daddy. Jesus said you call him Abba, Father, which is Aramaic for a very endearing term of Daddy. You have the ability now, your relationship with God is so right that you can, as Chris, uh, um, Chrysostom said in the 4th century, you now can just have conversation with God. You can just talk to God openly and honestly. One of my favorite definitions of prayer is from Psalm 62 where it says, pour out your hearts before God. Just pour it out. Let it go. That's what they were able to do now. They were devoted to doing that. For the first time in their lives, they were being able to have an open relationship, an open conversation with God. And I started to think, what do we do at Hope? What do we do at Hope that is our corporate prayers? This is talking about prayers where we're all together. And we do it. We have time where we have prayer nights and everything. But what do we do as a group to pray? We sing. Every week when we sing, those are prayers. Like Tim said before we started worship today, those are prayers where you're offering them to God. That's a corporate way. There's something powerful of being in a room with 300 other people and we're all praying the same thing to God. That is our corporate prayer. <clears throat> Let me close this morning by asking you a question. Do you worship Jesus this morning or do you just worship the benefits that he gives you? This week, uh, boys and I watched, I can't remember, was that, when was Extreme Makeover Home Edition on? Was that Thursday or? I don't know what it was, Thursday or Friday or whatever. We watched this Extreme Makeover Home Edition thing. If you don't know what that is, they basically have in one week's time, these people come and they basically level your house and in one week's time, they fix it up so it's, so it's you know, brand spanking new, but you don't have anything to say about it. You just leave, they send these, this particular group, they sent to Disneyland and, uh, and then they came back and they completely changed it according to their own, you know, how they wanted to. And of course, you know, no one yet has filed suit that they don't like it. They all like it. In this particular case, they had done this house. And it wasn't that bad of a house to begin with, I didn't think, this last week. And they had done it. It was. It was awesome. I mean, they made the kids thing into a, into a castle. And they had a, a remote control door so two kids could have two different rooms. And I mean, it was, it was just awesome. But the best part of the show was that while this was all happening, their dad was in Iraq, and he was uh, part of the military. And unbeknownst to them, they had brought the dad home. So they, they think they're talking to him on a satellite phone. In fact, he's in the backyard. <laughs> and so when they go to the backyard, the kids are just freaking. There's three boys, which, you know, brings joy to my heart. There's three boys... And they're just, the whole thing is just awesome. They made the whole backyard into a 1 18th the size of, of Dodger Stadium, you know. And I mean, it's just awesome. 
And these kids are just having the times of their life. They're just laughing and screaming. They think it's great. And then uh, they bring out Tommy Lasorda. They say, Tommy Lasorda's here, and he wants to, you know, play a wiffle ball with you and your new thing. Brings up, says, well, I want to bring out my, my, my uh, pitching assistant. And out comes the dad with a, with a hat on, so you couldn't quite tell who it was. And those boys, they were happy and everything. When they saw their dad, they just start weeping. And the one kid says, this was the best of all. Don't get so caught up in worshiping all the things that God does for you. And they're awesome. They're awesome. To be forgiven, to be justified, to be regenerated, to be changed, to be able to now be in a group where you can sing and pray and break bread together, that's awesome. But the best of all is that your dad is home. And you get to worship him. Let's pray together. Our dad in heaven, we just come to you and praise you because of who you are. Lord, I want to thank you that you are a genius. That not only do you forgive us of our sin, but you give us Christ's righteousness. Not only do you do that, but you work in our lives to completely change us. You, talk, you give us that water that's talked about in Ezekiel where it says you'll sprinkle clean water on us and we're clean. You'll give us a new heart and a new spirit. It's your promise. You promised to make us clean. You promised to give us a big do-over. You promised to give, make us uh, alive when we were dead. And not only that, but you promised on this journey of life where we're still going to struggle with doing the wrong things at times, you promised to be with us, to guide us, as we work that out in the context of our fellowship. So Father, and I mean that in the most endearing way, Dad, we come to you as people who just want to worship you. We come to you as people who want to be continually transformed. Lord, there are probably people in this room for the first time in their life want to say, Father, I'm a sinner and I need to be covered by Jesus. I need that Jesus jacket. I need to exchange them. Lord, right now, in the, in the quietness of their own heart, would they right now speak to you and just say, Lord, here it is. You take my sin. I turn from it. I don't want that life anymore. And I want to turn towards you. God, would you, would you give those in this room who need to be transformed, who need to be forgiven, who need to be given the Jesus jacket, would you, would you give them the, this morning as a gift? Lord, for everyone else in this room who maybe days or even years ago made that commitment to follow you, would you continually transform us? We cry out for it. We cry out that you would set our hearts on fire, just like John Wesley. Would you have us be a fire? Lord, would you make Hope Community Church a big bonfire that the world could watch? Do that in us, God. It's only going to happen through you. We pray this in Christ's name.